You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgbm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGBM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. Welcome to this week's edition of the show. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we're the co-hosts of The Dirt on the Past. This week, we're at the Extreme History Headquarters, speaking via Zoom, with Marsha Small. We're excited to talk with Marsha about a lot of her research involving Indian boarding schools. But before we do that, Crystal, let's check in with you. How was your week? It was a great week at Extreme History Headquarters. Sounds exciting. (laughs) All right, there's some news. All right, let's hear it. So, um, you know, we've had a long relationship with Humanities Montana here in Bozeman, or in Montana. And Humanities Montana was, I think, gave Extreme History Project its first grant when we first started out 10, 12 years ago. Mm. And they have been supporting us ever since. And so um, especially during the pandemic, um, you know, small organizations like the Extreme History Project had a really hard time, um, especially organizations like ours that do a lot of public programming and are really working with the public in walking right. tours, you lectures. Can't get I mean, together and yeah. get out and yeah. So yeah. it was really hard. And so they really supported us through that um, year of 2020. And now in 2021, we just got another grant from them. We got a SHARP grant. Okay, what's with, that? Which is S-H-A-R-P, um, S-H-A-R-P. So a SHARP grant, which is comes from the National Humanities, um, but comes through Humanities Montana. And it's just a, for us, it was an operational grant. So a a grant for for basic operations. And so I just wanted to give a shout out to Humanities Montana because they have done so much for us for all the years we've been in existence and they continue to do so much for us. And so um, we love them. And, you know, every state has a humanities program like Humanities Montana. So if you're listening in Kansas, there's a there is a Humanities Kansas program. If you're listening in Michigan, there's one in Michigan, there's one in New York. There's there is right. these um statewide humanities programs in every state and they're so important to small organizations like Extreme History Project. Um they really help us keep keep the lights on literally literally <laughs> with this last grant that they gave us um it helps us keep our keep, lights on keep your staff um <laughs> keep uh, our staff fed and, and yep. paid and warm in the winter and yeah no that's wonderful yeah. um that's huge and yeah. so they're they've seen extreme history grow so yeah. much over the last 10 years mm-hmm. and more mm-hmm. so um so that's lovely to be able to get an operating grant cuz yeah. those are often the most difficult to secure so congratulations thank that's you. huge thank you so yeah. what what about you, Nancy? What's been going on with you this well, week? Well, this week, um, this week, I was hoping hoping to get up to Lewistown, Montana, because the Reed and Bowles excavations have been going on there. So that was a very old trading post, one of the first in Montana, right? Mm-hmm. Am I right? 
about that? And um, well, not one of the first, but you know, an early, an early one. Um, what eighteen seventy? Eighteen seventies. Okay, yeah, so yeah. around there. And this has been a community project that um, Jeannie Mo and Steve Auberg, Victoria Bokniak, so many um, students that we've been involved with. You and I have been up there. It's it seems about um, every summer, maybe for the past four summers or so. They take about a week to two weeks, and they work with the community in Lewistown to do some excavations. They have um, dismantled the fort so that they could better preserve it. So before they put it back together on its original foundation, they wanted to be able to excavate and recover any items that might be there. And just in, you know, maybe six inches uh, depth, um, in this very small trading post, they're, they're already finding so many amazing things, certain kinds of buttons and gaming pieces and coins. Didn't you find a coin mm-hmm. in the screen? You had yeah. showed up in like 10 minutes into I it. Know. You pulled one out of the screen. <laughs> that was, that was probably two summers ago. Yeah. I showed up and started screening and, and yeah, it was, it was like five minutes in. Yeah. <laughs> and I pulled out this. Everyone was really coin. mad, really, really, really envious, I should yeah. say. <laughs> yeah. It was, and it was, I think it was 1872 was oh, the yeah. date on the Coin. So it's so perfect. Right it was right in we'd be expecting. Used, yeah. And one of them, Reed Endorbles, had um, taken a wife that was a crow. And so there were there have been some stories that I know Steve Auberg has been trying to trace on. So that's a really interesting project. And mm-hmm. I, this might be the final summer that they're mm-hmm. wrapping it up. So I know that they're digging. Today is Friday that we're recording. And all through next Friday, they'll be up there working. So I'm hoping to get up there at least yeah, for a I day. Hope you can, Nancy. I know I'm hoping to That'd lure you up there with me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Aside from that, we're just we're getting ready to do another remodel at the shop and getting ready to launch the e-commerce part of the website for the store, but also um Montana State University started back up. Yeah. So our kids yeah. are back in our classes. Our kids are back in school. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my daughter Emily and your son Aiden. Yep. So they've sophomores. started up. I know. And sophomores. Ian's back teaching yeah. photography. So sophomores, it'll be different. Yeah. And they'll be in classes with actual people yeah. masked up if they're yeah. inside. But yeah. um be really interesting to see how the semester goes. It will. Yeah. It will. Yeah. We're hoping it, it's everyone stays healthy. Yeah. Um, so, so anyway, we should get back to our guest, yeah. Marcia Small. Yeah, well, we're so glad to have you with us today, Marsha. Welcome. Welcome, Marsha. Thank you. Yeah. Um, before we um, get into some questions, we want to start off, as we always do, by telling our listeners a little about our guests. So we're going to tell them a little bit about your background, Marsha. Um, you have been a guiding force to extreme history for many years. And you are currently a board member, and we're so grateful to have that extra time of yours. Um, you have been such an integral part of many EH projects, and you'll continue to, to do so now, I'm, I'm sure, in the future in an even more official capacity. Marsha also leads the Indigenous Peoples Day Montana movement and her work with the preservation and conservation of sacred places through the use of ground-penetrating radar, GPS, and GIS. She works most specifically in boarding school cemeteries and is internationally recognized for her work. Marsha uses ground-penetrating radar to locate unmarked graves without disturbing any of the remains below the surface of the ground. And she has worked, um, her own research has been at the Chimawa Indian School Cemetery in Salem, Oregon. 
Marsha has a master's degree in Native American studies from Montana State University and is now working on a PhD in earth science also at MSU. She has taught Native American studies at MSU since 2015 and was the Distinguished Visiting Native American Studies Professor in Anthropology at Willamette University in 2019. Welcome, welcome Marcia. Yeah. Welcome, Marcia. Hello. A um, couple of clarifications. I'm a doctoral student in the Individual Interdisciplinary Program. My spectrum was way too broad for earth sciences, so they had a hard time wrapping their head around what my our work needs, our area of healing is. Um, I'm by no means a GPR expert. I've seen it three times in the media this morning, and I'm like, um, no, I'm I'm merely a navigator. I'm just one of the rowers. <laughs> I would say so I, I I would I would uh, uh, say you're more of an expert than than you no. say you are. But <laughs> oh yeah, I haven't taught Native American studies in quite a while. I help uh, Kristen Rupa once in a while uh, in her field work with uh, Native Amer- American food systems, mostly using my network to help her class move forward as uh, as a unit just to. Um, because my my network is a little different than most networks. Mine is um, more grassroots, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. people doing the actual work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thanks, Marcia. Thanks. Thanks for that. Yeah. yeah. So we're going to be talking about a subject that is not easy to discuss, but it is very important. I just want to make sure that you know how much we appreciate you being here with us today and taking the time to talk with us about this hard history. So, Marcia, I want to ask you, how did you make your way into the work that you're doing now that we're going to be talking about a little later on today? But um, how did you make your way into this work and what brought you to this profession? I think ultimately it was the voices of the children. I was in the master program and I was looking for a project by nature and by heart, by desire. I am an ecologist. I'm an an indigenous um, ecologist. I practice our old ways, our traditional ways through our epistemology. So I've always floated in that environment. I graduated at Southern Oregon University with undergrad environmental science and social policy. And I think I'm about four credits of a sort of anthropology. But I always, I had so many, you know, my, some of my interests are so buried, but they all related back to how food, sovereignty, you know, issues with that. And so, and I started my master's program in Native American studies at Montana State. I I knew I needed to, because again, my spectrum was so broad, right? Because mm-hmm. this food sovereignty, you have seed sovereignty, you have 573 tribes. You're trying to deal with those individual epistemologies, you know, the axiological trust, um, just multiple, you know, elements to consider. So I asked my network across the nation, and um, I thought, out of all the people that I asked, would I, any ideas what I should do for the master's? Silver replied, but one was consistent. That was Robert Kenta with the Celeste Indian tribe here in Oregon. He says, I, I said, what, what's your idea? And he says, why don't you get one of those, you know, those thingies that look below the surface and uh, go find all those kids in Chamorro Cemetery. And I'm like, yeah, woo. you know, <laughs> kind of heady because, well, for one thing, Cheyenne women by, um, by tradition do not necessarily um, hang out in cemeteries or work with the dead, right? 
So I was, I had one barrier there, you know, another barrier is I knew absolutely nothing about ground penetrating radar, but I didn't know our, our, our um, procedures, our protocols and working with those who have gone beyond the Milky Way. So I took Robert Kenta's suggestion and I looked into it and I was very intrigued. But once I got to rolling in it, the ancestors took over mm-hmm. and the um, and multiple multiple doors opened, you know, where I'd been fighting for funding and, you know, um, ex- doing other other stuff, I um, uh, other barriers. I soon find myself in a path where, you know, um, I felt good about things. I felt good inside my, I felt like I was doing something that ultimately I could help heal the people. And that has always been the focus of my um, agenda is to, um, help heal people, help the helpless in this area healing. So that's kind of how I started. And um, that Robert Kenter, I say, provided the spark, and the ancestors are still carrying, still carrying me. So, Marsha, because we we're going to be talking a lot about that work um, and about Indian boarding schools in general, we were wondering if you could give our listeners. A little bit of an overview or a brief history, sort of when it started in the American West and why um, did it start with the missionaries? Were they always government-run schools? What was what was the purpose of these, and um, and what was the outcome and the impact? Can you just sort of give you know take as long as you want, but give give some background for for us for perspective. It's about land land grab. General Allotment Act and the Indian boarding schools go hand in hand. It's about erosion of tribal sovereignty. It's about a total lack of disregard about a people by stealing their children. On the auspice, they say, oh, we're trying to help you. Kill the Indians, save the man. But what it really boils down to is they wanted to erode tribal sovereignty and um Really, just take the land. And what better way to do it than to make your, you know, you want to eradicate a people, do it through education and do it in one, you can do it in one generation. Um, they started it at, well, my study is about 1880 to 1940, but uh, Pratt started earlier because so uh, he had some prisoners um, and uh some Cheyenne, Cheyenne Arapaho, and some other tribes. I can't think of that many, but he wanted to, he uh, had this, he'd had this, come in. Hold. Um, he had this um, idea that he could, you know, that he wanted to really basically kill the insane man or drown the, drown the native until they were fully emerged in the education system, right? Lose their ways. Um, and it really wasn't about assimilation. It really was about just taking the land. And um, it continues today. Well, two of the boarding schools today are not the boarding schools of yesteryear. But they are in a way. Because the boarding schools of today are still focused 
uh, well, they're most uh, boarding schools provide a home for Native students away from home. They do uh, have more cultural integrity, more more cultural element to it. Um, but I know very few of these schools do they offer um, language programs to those students. And I think that the language uh, is tied innately to our identity, to mm-hmm. all our identities. If you don't know your ancestral language, I think only a part of you is, well, only a part of you is hope is there, right? Only part of mm-hmm. you is really you mm-hmm. until you understand your language and tend to understand who your ancestors are. And so that, that was the that was key concept behind this is to um, kill the Indian, save the man. And but that didn't quite work too good. But what it did do is it created uh, a socioeconomic and political disparities in our system today that are inequity, uh, et cetera, um, that are still very um, viable. Uh, we are, I always tell people that natives with the social impacts, the health disparities, they're dying a slow death. Mm-hmm. You know, they live just to exist that day. And it's it's a it's it's not a, it's not a it's not a pretty world. Well, we know history isn't pretty, right? Right, right. So, um, Indian boarding schools, although they started back for my study in 1880s, and they started previous to that, um, they were always about uh, taking the land and uh, changing the people, uh, creating a genocide of the people. So, give us a little bit of specifics in terms of um, who would actually come to families on on different reservations and were was there any choice or were children just had to be given over and then what experience would the children likely have when then they showed up at a boarding school so give us a little bit of sort of a better understanding of what that experience was like to actually have the child be taken from the family and then for the child when they showed up? I can think of two um, instances and I'll try to give you a personal one and one that I've, um, one that's visible today. Mm -hmm. Um, One is that I've talked to multiple people that attended boarding Indian boarding schools and um, they all say, well, it made me stronger. It made me stronger. Um, But at the end of these conversations, at the end of these interviews, I've asked each one of them, and this is, um, this is what I put in my dissertation, is that um, not one of them knew their language. And that language is key identity. The language um, ties to the land. The land is, is, um, the land is the individual. I can't emphasize that enough. Mm-hmm. A personal one is because we know these children, for the most part, were stolen and kidnapped and um, taken. And then even in those times that they were offered, they were under such the reservation system that they held the reservation people on. Excuse me. They um, they 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 would withhold their their um, uh, they would hold their they would withhold their their groceries. They would withhold mm-hmm. their, their resources from them. Right, right. And uh, if they didn't send their kid to the boarding school, right? Right. So all the and, annuity goods and things they were promised just for right? having them stay on a reservation, they were then withholding those unless they sent their kids. So there was really this hor- horrible. 
The United States has a hard time keeping its promises to the original inhabitants of these lands. They, you know, over 400 treaties, you know, and and, and just it was just like in 1871, they stopped making treaties. Well, we kind of have one treaty process today. We have the Intertribal Buffalo Council. I don't know if you all know about that, but that's something you might want to look at because it's a treaty between entities and it doesn't really include the federal government because the federal government is not really good at keeping their promises with the people. Um, a personal one is that for me, when I was growing up, I would stay with my grandmother um, during the summers mostly. And um, to keep us in line, it would be home thoughts, you know, go sit down or, you know, shh, be quiet, hip thoughts, you know, sit down. Or um, um, if we got really out of control, you know, crazy kids and all, you know, because, you know, I was like four or five at the time. Um uh, she would always say, shh, shh, and come get you. And mm-hmm. I go, and I, we'd all stop, you know, and she'd go, Mustat, the Mustat's going to get you. And we'd, you know, freak out. Mustat is the monster, right? It's the monster. But the monster was, for her, was the policeman. Oh, wow. The policeman that would come to get the children mm-hmm. and steal them from the parents. More mm-hmm. often than not, they had the Indian agent do it and the, the a member of the tribe come still take the children because he knew what they would think. As soon as you said they're here or, you know, as you see them coming down the road, the children would scatter and they'd hide and he knew where to go find them. He was, he was of them. Yeah. Wow. He knew how their mind worked. Mm. So for me growing up, it was Mustat, and the Mustat was the policeman to come take us away. Wow. To yeah. take us away to the boarding school. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, thanks, Marcia, um, for giving those those examples. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about your research for your master's thesis, your documentation of the Chamawa Indian Boarding School Cemetery, which is located just north of Salem, Oregon? In that cemetery, I worked with the uh, Confederate Tribes of Grand Ronde. They were very instrumental in uh, peaking and promoting uh, my interest into geophysical uh, instruments, uh, specifically ground penetrating radar. They actually bought one, and uh, we, we um, they taught me. Are they? They started my life learning of this um, of this. How would I say it? the non-invasive, non-disturbing magicness. And I don't want to call GPR magic to have that relationship. But to me, in my head, it was, oh, my gosh, you can find things without digging up people. Right. Yeah. Without yeah. disturbing right. our relatives, you know. And, right. So it was very instrumental. So then that was a new thing for me. And it was like pushing a baby buggy. Uh, their instrument was the GSSI 400, and I learned on that. But, um, um. What I found in the cemetery at the time, in part of the data, and I'm working with uh, Bruce Edwards again and working with Eric Torres card, um, I didn't know how to read it very well. And so that data was kind of, with the second block on grid A was compromised. It just, it just attenuated out. But the first one, I still could, people, I would send it to people and they would say, I don't know what to make of this, you know? And being as I'm not, I wasn't, you know, well-versed as I am now in GPR, not saying I'm versed very much either because I will always be a navigator. Um, I I learned that uh, there was A to J issues with my data mm. that I um, I didn't, I didn't set my wheel right. Um there was just various issues that I, I did. And so I couldn't really use that data, even though it was from 2013. So I went back, or I 
I went back. What I did, what I could find out, what I could find is I knew that between Reese Edwards and I, um, we could find, we knew there were children that were missing that weren't, you know, there were, there were, there were stories to tell here. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like 2018, uh, Dr. Briggs and I went under with GPR and we located um, basically hundreds without markers. There's markers there and there's, there's children there. But they're not on alignment. So that's when I say there's children with missing markers or children with unknown. We don't really know who they are. We can we can guesstimate at it because um, it's been said that the children that one one historian Petrumala says that um, the the uh, the facilities went in and replaced or uh, replaced the um, or set the markers. Um, the children in the school made the markers. Mm-hmm. And uh, when when Dr. Burks and I finished up, several uh, the markers weren't really in alignment with the bodies, mm-hmm. with the with the graves, not with the bodies, not with the bodies, with the graves, okay. right? Because after a hundred years, you don't have much left. You have the consolidated soils that are indicative of a of a disturbed ground okay. when you're digging or you're filling back in with a, another soil. There's that um, uh, unconsolidatedness. I see. That's indicated of the term. So, so children were buried in the cemetery from, um, did you say, 1880 to about 1940? Is that the time frame of the mm-hmm. of this cemetery? Well, that's from that's where my focus is at. Okay, just your focus. That's where my focus is at. But there, okay. is, is, is a working cemetery. Oh, it is. Okay, it's still, it's still, it's still working. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think uh, it's mostly for tribal members of the nine tribes, or you know. Well, they're the nine tribes now. Back in the day, I mean, we can talk about that for a, for a second. You know, they they uh, confederated these tribes. They put they put nations together that were mortal enemies. You know, that oh, had been yeah. fighting for a couple of eons. Well, in disagreement. I don't want to say fighting because I don't know. I wasn't there, but I do know from history documentation that these tribes were um, always not on good terms with each other. Mm-hmm. But I think in the Grand Round Tribe, they put like over sixty tribes together. You know. Wow. Uh, why you can say that might provide a little bit of similarity in cultural protocols and much of it these tribes are specific and distinct yeah they have their own ways of conducting their spirituality they have their own governments they have they were existing way before right yeah so um the losses okay um was it a normal thing was this common do you think um beyond the the cemetery that you studied was it was it very common to have cemeteries at the boarding schools where children were placed in in graves that were either not well marked or unmarked um and and what does that say about sort of what was going on during this this time period where children were sent off to boarding schools i don't know very many schools that have cemeteries i don't do i don't know any (laughs) Except these. Right? Right, right. Put your mind in that. Put your mind in that trench for a minute. What does it mean to you? I mean, what is it just something that you're just going to pick up and lightly throw over your shoulder and walk away from? Not really. It should probably stick in your gut. Probably should stick in your craw. It should probably hurt your heart. It does. Children, I, I, they don't go back home. I, d- I don't know what... It doesn't sound like there's records. I don't know if their parents were informed. Like there, I have so many questions, Marcia. And and if you're saying it, it happens at more than just this 
boarding school that you studied, you know, that's a lot of cemeteries with a lot of children. I mean, even even a handful is too many. But it doesn't sound like there was the effort to, to really document and care what was going on and where where these children's remains ended up, how they they were able to notify family, tribes, get those, you know, have a ceremony around that. I disagree. It's hard I, to imagine. Right? I disagree with them not having accurate records. Okay. You ever look at superintendent records? No. They tell you what color shirt they were wearing that day. Yeah. So They're you really mean accurate records in the school, though? Yeah. So, you know, um, when uh, when Marsha Fulton and myself went back and uh, looked at the Carlisle Indian Boarding School records, not the cemetery, but just we were trying to track a few Abzalaga um, children or Crow children who went to Carlisle. Those records were meticulous. That, like you said, Marcia, they talked about what they wore when they got there, what their hair color was, what their eye color was, what they, you know, um, they were so meticulous. So why didn't that translate to when? Right. There's no records of yeah, the cemetery. Yeah, there's no records of the cemetery, or is there? But they're they've but been they've been destroyed, or yeah. right. And there should be a record yeah. of what, when, why, where, and, and why, and why yeah. are they there? Why are their yeah. remains there at the school and not back with their their tribe and their families in a in a burial place? There. That's that's what I mean. It's it's such yeah. a imbalance of of record and and care. You know. No, true. It's so unjust. It's really unjust. Very unjust. Because not only did they not return, but they created generations of um, cold. You know, we had time immemorial practices, techniques. We knew the land. We could, you know, um, I'm always telling Crystal that, um, you know, to steer the land, you know, which way the, the wind flows across it, you know, which way the grass, you know, you know uh, flows in the breeze, you know, what songs the birds sing on the land in the early morning. You have an intimate relationship with that land. As such, you know what that land can do best, you know, for the horizon. And in multiple places, you know, of the beings, uh, you know, that help sustain the land, help and it helps sustain, and in that way, help you sustain um, yourselves. Um so having having that having that knowledge of that land, having that identity of that land, is critical. And the children were taught from a very young age of how to know the procedures, the techniques, the protocols that one of each tribe uh, that was handed down to them through oral tradition. We had those memories. Those exact memories, that way of it going in our ears and out our mouth, the same way that we heard it. So we had that, right? The children were that. Then they took the children, jerked them out of that system. So there was nobody to take those to take those memories forth. Nobody to listen to those lands. So you know there were people there, and you know, I always I always say there is a couple children that escaped. But um, a lot, some of that knowledge is 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 a uh, you know, I mean, I've learned stuff from my grandparents, you know, about the old ways. Um, from my mom about the old ways. But really what they did when they took the children is they tried to, it wasn't just a gentle genocide. They tried to take the horizon away from the people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was no place for those 
that that body of knowledge to go. There was no place for it to be received because the people who held it didn't have that younger generation to tell it to, and there was no way to write and record, other than just what a few white ethnographers were doing if they came out. So all of that, mm-hmm. all of that way of life, way of being, way of understanding the land. I mean, and I, I, I think your point has been well supported by many people's work that that was all part and parcel of, of how you then um, sort of create a cultural genocide uh, on top of actually um, harming people and uh, and get that land back off of the reservation into it's sense. just taking the land it's it's telling people so they've lost any other way of being on that land um, and it's it's interesting because we've been hearing so much in the news lately about um, boarding schools cemeteries bringing up these similar issues in Canada and it seems to have generated an amazing amount of, of press around the outrage and the and the sadness um, I was wondering if if you could talk about that and tell us if, if you've been following that and been involved with that at all how is how does that compare with what has gone on in the United States I've talked with dr. Greer and I think he's um Dr. Gerwick worked with the government, of Canadian government, for like 30 years before he was at WSU. But we chatted a bit about the protocols. And I, right now I've written, along with Dr. McBride and Dr. King, Perina King, Dr. Preston McBride. And we, us three, us three have been, they're, they're historian, but we've been working together in Indian boarding schools for six, seven years together. You know, always trying to, you know, bouncing ideals off each other, trying to present on a panel with each other, you know, but always keeping each other kind of in the loop and um, always being very aware of what the other is doing. So we come up with this list of protocols and uh, how that tribe should uh, think about uh, during their, their, their cemeteries, because what happened in Canada is that all of a sudden there is this basket of money and uh, tribes all wanted to buy their GPR, right? Buy their own units without really knowing the intricacies of what is involved in using those that, those instruments and using that technology. And so Dr. Greer and I are talking, and, and then they were developing their, you know, um, the uh, Canadian uh, Anthropology Association, I think that's what it's called, um, archaeology, um, so Anthropology Association, they were discussing the protocols, you know, um, up there. And we at length discussed, you know, what they were doing up there and, my vision, our vision for what happened down here, and one of the one of the barriers down here that we see uh, is that it we don't want it to be happen so fast that every tribe goes out and buys a GPR and doesn't know what to do with it, mm-hmm. doesn't know that there's a lot more uh, to it, and that reading the data is uh, it it takes years to really learn it. And if you're going to learn in a good way and help your community, then it's best to embrace that and and not only know the instrument and its capacities, but to know magnetometry too, so you have more of a um, well-rounded data, have more more well-rounded data. But that was included in our protocols. So we came up with a list of protocols. We sent it to um, Native American Boarding School Healing Project, and I believe they're going to put it in their website too, and so that tribes can go. I've been, I'm working, I've worked, uh, I've done more than one cemetery, so I, I can't talk about the others, though. Uh, 
uh, their tribal, uh, their their government, it's a government. So they, they silo that information. It's up to them to whatever they do. Um, and that's a high recommendation. You have institutions. Now you have one University of Utah um, working with the Paiute there to um, to do their cemetery. And the archaeologist, the university professor, had absolutely no problem. He said, oh, what do you want us to dig? We'll dig. You know, mm. and I'm like, mm. you know, <laughs> oh, you have probably have more than one tribe. And you better make darn sure that you have all those tribes, all those family members, that they all say, yeah, they want their children dug, yeah, dig up. Because you're working with the, you know, you're working with those strong people. Yeah. You know, some of those people don't even want you to even touch it, even want a non-native on that. Right, right. You have to have those considerations and have to have a majority consensus of how to of these protocols that are involved in a survey. You can't just jump out and say, yeah, we're going to do this archaeological survey the way I want to because I'm from this institution, you know, and because yeah. I'm giving you the GPR for free, by God. Right, yeah. right, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know. There's so, much, yeah. there's so much involved in that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So really, we want to look at the healing horizon of this, right? Okay. Canada yeah. jumped in, offered this big basket of money to people. Um, but look at this. There's people there that, you know, they knew about these children in the cemeteries, these some these mass burials, if you will. But to me, um, not necessarily mass burials, but, you know, the genocide victims of this, right? Um mm-hmm. They, they, um, the people knew that it was still such a surprise to countries around the world, to people around the world, and specifically in the United States. Oh my God, how could that happen? You found 250 unmarked graves, you know, <laughs> like. Well, you didn't, did, in my opinion, they didn't do it right. If they'd done it right, then, you know, a lot of tribes would have been more well-versed in it. Their family members would have been more aware. Their yeah. communities would have been aware. You know, the atrocities, there's, there, there's high atrocity here. It's, it's, it's a huge impact. Right. So, you know, that leads me to my next question, Marcia. So what is re- the responsibility of the of these churches, of the federal government, um, who organized and operated these boarding schools, um, do you think they have a role to play in helping people find their loved ones, their ancestors, and possibly, if the the tribal nation wants it, repatriating these these children? I am not very fond of the Catholic Church right now. Um, you all <laughs> I think you have a lot of good company, yeah. <laughs> I know, for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Um, they continue to hide their pedophiles. They continue to hide their pedos. You know, I think Brad Brooks and there's a whole contingency of, of a global of global investigative journalist in 2005, I think, that actually tracked pedof- some pedophiles. We have we had one recently, uh, a doctor uh, in the black uh, that through the Indian Health Service that worked on the Blackfeet Reservation. Mm-hmm. They knew he was a pedophile. They knew. The, the the Bureau of Indian uh, Administration, I think it was, or the Indian Health Service, one of them. But you know the high high government officials in, in Indian country, they they knew the stories, they knew the rumors, and they knew some of the children harmed. Mm. And so what did they do? They moved them to South Dakota to another reservation. Mm. Oh you know, and, and, and for the church, they continue this to hide their pedos. I know that, and I I can't remember which. Um, 
I know it was Brad Brooks of the Reuters, Reuters, R-U-E-T-E-R. But um, him and a, bunch, a lot of them journalists found that the Catholic Church, instead of admitting their culpability in this, were still moving those individuals around without, you know. They never punish I mean, them. They just move them. And and it's it stands to be very, you know, logical to assume that the, this same practices were going mm-hmm. on in, in all of these schools, in all of these Catholic mm-hmm. institutions, and we're just finding more and more documentation of how these people were never reprimanded, never taken out of the system, but just just passed on to another place. So you can right. only imagine what some of these children experienced in different places Um the ones that survived and then the ones that ended up in cemeteries. God only right. knows the reasons that they ended up in those cemeteries. Yeah. And, and yeah, and, and if you could have the Catholic Church and the government actually attending this, well, we know what the um, Indian Boarding School Initiative that Deb Halland and her her administration is, um, through the Biden administration, is is attending this, you know. But the mm-hmm. progress is slow. I mm-hmm. know that uh, mm-hmm. Christy McCleaver Native American Boarding School the healing project asked Brian Newland, the deputy director, if there was a possibility of getting a crisis line because it landed in our lap so fast. The trauma, of, uh, the scars, the wound was ripped off, you know, reopened, ripped off. And um, for people across the United States, they have nowhere to turn. They don't know, you know, this is this is horror all over again. Right. And there's no, there's nobody, there's no researchers to call or, you know, it's just like, oh, cripes, we could have had a little warning in this, you know, but right. since we don't, can we get a, at least a, a, a crisis line? And the deputy director said that it was more than likely possible, but, you know, at to this date, we still don't have nothing in place. Mm-hmm. And that's the horror of it is that, you know, again, that these, that the, you know, descendants have to go through this horror again and again. Yeah. Right. 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 There's so many people living today who went to boarding schools and experienced this. And, you know, this probably does really, um, it is very triggering for them to hear about what's happening in Canada, but then also here in, in different places. So, mm-hmm. Marcia, we're going to. I just don't see them, the church, even, you know, I mean, I've seen something up in Canada and there is a church, the Catholic Church was raising funds for the, for the, uh, uh, children lives matter movement i'm like yeah. oh you naughty people really mm-hmm. you're disgusting you know but you know with the covid monies um some churches i read actually placed the pedophiles use the pedoph- used the uh, monies from that to pay the lawyer fees oh, the legal gosh. fees for some of these pedophiles and i'm not sure what that haven't reached into that i just know i read it in the media and i'm like oh my god when i have a moment i'm gonna look at i'm gonna look at that one you know yeah yeah how, how long can it suck each corner how mm. long can this idiotic you know how mm. long how long can this ignorance go on right right mm-hmm. right Marsha, we're going to take a um, a short station break before we continue. You're listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Crystal Alegria and Nancy Mahoney on KGVM Bozeman or wherever you find your podcasts. We're speaking today with Marsha Small about her work locating and documenting Indian boarding school cemeteries. So this is one of our tougher topics and harder histories um, that we don't want to shy away from here at Extreme History and the Dirt on the Past. And um, Marsha, we can hear in your voice and understand what it must be like to be involved in this work. And it, I just want to get back a, 
a little bit to the the idea of using ground penetrating radar because as you said maybe now with these efforts that there's been more publicity about the existence of these boarding school cemeteries this effort to come forward and document how many there are um, how many potential graves there are within them that may be unmarked and then start to imagine what to do involving tribes and their wishes first about having ceremony or repatriating or something about those. So there's so many different moving parts and levels, but one of the pieces that you've worked with before is how ground penetrating radar, like you say, it's, it's like pushing a, a baby carriage. You say, I always think of it as sort of like pushing a lawnmower, you know, but over the surface of an area back and forth in very specific straight lines to gather data from the radar that's um, forced down into under the ground and where there's been disturbed soil or not, or whether there's rocks or something, it will read differently um, on uh, the the data information that you get back and and that you then analyze, and it's able you're able then to find out whether there are areas where there is disturbed ground that you would associate with the orientation and the size, perhaps of a grave that held a child. So we are um, talking about now the potential for for groups to be using those types of technologies not to disturb the remains, but to start to, to document. Um, and then from there, what, what is the possibility? Are there records, as you said, that there are some amazingly detailed records of when children show up to school? Do you think, Marcia, that there's any potential hope for looking at these graves, um, figuring out something about the years in which people may have been interred in them and and matching up maybe missing records so we could identify some individuals who may have ended up in there what's your what are your thoughts on that possibility and that hope that we actually identify some some people that have been lost to history i think it's um it's critical <laughs> But, you know, this didn't happen overnight, so it's not going to be healed overnight either. Right. You know, first, you know, you got to get the embargoed records released. You can talk to the religious institution, you can talk to the Sisters of Providence, but they'll tell you that, yeah, if you have, and it's the same thing that's going on in Carlisle. If you have direct lineage to that child in that cemetery, then you have that right to um, assume that uh, the child take them home. If you don't, then, oh, my goodness, I don't think you can. Or if you can, then it's maybe through a typical process. But I know they have the same type of thing going on at Sisters of Providence. If you want information about any any children in the cemetery under their under their um, whatever it is their their institution, then you have to be related to them. And then that um, then too um, only that person you can't ask for any of the records. So it makes it very difficult then to even identify who might be in the unmarked graves. If you don't even know, how do you even know if you're a lineal or adjacent, you know, descendant, if these remains, it sounds like it would be difficult for researchers or um, perhaps family members to find the information. we We have historians out here now going, well, I know I can tell you who's in that cemetery. And I'm like, no, you can't. 
That's I, I like that. I like that. I love your dream of that. But in actuality, since these records are so embargoed, you know, I don't know. I know that there's going to be better plot maps out there. Mm-hmm. I know that these, these institutions have better plot maps, have better, you know, record keeping. I truly believe this. I um, I know that there's historians for the Chimawa Cemetery that, you know, um, think they know who's in a cemetery, but there are, you know, at least two um, anomalies. I don't want to really say anomalies because they know we know, you know, as Dr. Hubbard and I agree, and multiple people in my community, on my doctoral community, agree that it's someone's child. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So just yeah. to just Someone's to clarify, when you say there. anomaly, that's what we kind of call one of these areas in the data where it looks like there's been a disturbed ground. And it sounds weird calling a potential grave an anomaly, but that's the technical GPR term for right. what you're seeing in the data. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we really know it's somebody, somebody's child, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Conyers always, when you come in, we know what's there. You know, mm-hmm. we know what's there. Um the potential to link the faces to the markers, the bodies, you know, um, what's going on at Carlisle's or they, you know, they're, they're doing a metric that, the you know, this fits this native, these natives that, you know, during our other studies, our other forensic studies, you know, and we have many missing, many um, thousands of missing uh, indigenous people, you know, that have been studied uh, whose bones have been studied, right? So they use that metric to guide their study on uh, these repatriations, these rematriations, right? And so if it fits like if the if it looks like a Native American Native American female, age seventeen, then that then that's that that fits that marker. Mm-hmm. Is it really that person? Mm-hmm. Is that DNA really that person? Yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> This is where I come to con- come into conflict with my 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 tista way, you know, my t- my ways of knowing. Um, does it matter? Well, to me, it does because I don't want to bring home somebody else's child. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. right. You know, I want them to be able to go to their home, their people. You know, because it's so it means so much to them. Some of them want to go home so bad, so bad. Right? You might think I'm loopy here, but I truly feel this. I truly feel this. I guess maybe I put myself there too much, but um. But it sounds like you're saying that there's there's really some withholding, perhaps, of better records of these cemeteries, that mm-hmm. surely there should be some enactment of legislation at some point to, to that, yeah. force these institutions to turn them over. Because it's, it's that, I mean, I think that was your question, Crystal. It, mm-hmm. it seems like that's the responsibility that the, the church and the, the government have now to... Mm-hmm. to allow this information to go back to the tribes so that they can choose to do what they want. You know, Deb Hallen said, Hey, you churches get ready to open them up. Yeah. Those churches without any problem whatsoever, if they are the God fearing people that they, they say they are human oriented, human healing oriented should have already sent those records. They should, those records should already have been open. No, instead they're trying to, they're trying to bury them more mm-hmm. in the, the, you know, you just look at that action. You're going, Oh my God, you know, Oh my goodness. Right. 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 You know, I mean, that's, that's the 
um, humane thing to do at this point. Exactly. So, so Marsha, what, what is the end goal of this work that you do? I think you've talked a little bit about it, but I want, I, I just want to ask that question. What is the end goal of this work that you do and that so many others uh, um, like you are doing to find and document these cemeteries? What's the end goal? Yep. I think it's an issue we need to heal. I think that too, if we if we can create that bridge to these children, to their people, that abyss of annoying, the epigenetic stressor that haunts the daily lives of the native, I think we will begin to heal and we can begin to not only work toward a healing horizon, but be part of that collective healing to that horizon. Instead of just living to exist that day, I think that we will, they will live to be more productive members in their societies. And in that horizon to me says so much because right now suicide is the second leading cause of youth in Native America, 18 to 24. It's probably higher than that now. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we're, when this has got to end. This, is, this has got to end. Uh, our people, the people, the Native people, the original inhabitants of these lands, it cannot keep on happening. Two, though, I need to really be strong about this, is that non-Natives well have their own historical traumas related to this. The hiding of it, the hiding of the knowledge, accepting of this, and pushing it underneath the rug, um, that needs to be dealt with in their own historical trauma too, because they had historical trauma where where they came from to be here. And they're just not you're just not Americans. So you can't just say I'm Montana and I'm American. You're either Scottish American, you're you know you're Polish American, but you owe your ancestors that that linkage, that that integrity of knowledge of your of knowing who you are. And when you when the, when people come here for the majority of the part, they um, they brought some goods, you know, some pictures, but they brought too the traditional knowledge is that, you know, probably could have really helped us out here. Right. And we need to heal as a people. That's my ending statement. We really need to heal and move forward as a people. We don't have much time. No, I think you're right. And the healing is has to happen on both sides. I mean, as you said, it's it's a festering thing to have mm-hmm. known those, keep those records and, and not had a way to deal with them. So it's, it's everybody um, needs it. And, and it does feel that time is running short regarding that. Um, and I just wanted to ask you, Marcia, what your um, hashtag is, because um, you have a mm-hmm. hashtag. Um, and so if people can kind of uh, follow that and follow you, um, if you could, if you want to talk about any uh, websites that people could look to for more information on this, or or mm-hmm. if they, if if you're interested in having people follow you, or you know, any any more resources that you can give folks, that would be great. Mm-hmm. I have uh, the hashtag of voice for the children in Indian boarding school cemeteries. I have the hashtag of unified healing. Um. I have Instagram, Facebook, I have social media. But too, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you know, I'm always, uh, you can, uh, it sounds so tacky, so tawdry to say this, but if you Google me, my, my, my email is, it should be up under Google. 
and you can contact me that way. Or you can call Native American Studies at Montana State. I always bother them. I always poke them, so they always know where I'm at. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's great. So there'll be ways for for people to know what they can do to follow or or maybe Mm -hmm. find ways to support um, this Mm -hmm. work. Um, well, Marsha, we want to thank you so much for talking with us today mm-hmm. about this. It is, as we've said several times, it's a difficult history, um, but it's important to discuss. So we thank you for your continued dedication to this work and to um, being willing to kind of take on that emotional burden to explain it to other people so that mm-hmm. other people can understand its importance. Um, and thank you just for this work on the mission to locate and document you know, the graves of these children, we all should be involved in making that happen. Um, I'm very thankful for the invitation to speak um, for uh, Extreme History Project. Extreme History Project, in my mind, is always taking on these challenging questions and these challenging um, and meeting those challenges, stepping to that plate. So I'm very thankful and honored to be part of this podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Marcia. Thanks so much for being with us here today. We're, we're glad to be able to talk to you and and have you talk about this this history. So thanks, Marcia, and thanks to all our listeners out there for joining us today. If you love this podcast, please share it with a friend and make sure to subscribe so it shows up for you each week on your podcast app. We also have a Facebook page called The Dirt on the Past, so make sure to find that and like it. We put links to all our podcast episodes, but we also include links to articles, books, and other things that we discuss during the podcast. Thanks for listening today, and we hope you can join us again to find out more about the The Dirt dirt on the the past. Past. A big thank you to our editor and sound guru, Steve Durbin. Thank you to Lawson Alegria for the music and to John Chadwell for helping get this podcast out in the world.